HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Dyed Green. I'm Kate McCabe. And I'm Max Sussman. I am really excited to get right back into the swing of things after a very busy summer and a new baby. It's been a few weeks slash months, and we kind of fell out of the regularly scheduled podcasting, but we're going to be back into it this fall. And I'm really excited about our first episode. We miss you guys. We miss you guys. We miss our listeners. Did you miss us? We missed you. We miss doing this. It's really fun doing the podcast. We love talking to people. And yeah, we are really, really excited to get back into it this fall. Yes. And I'm especially excited about our first guest today, who is Chef Niall Sabongi. Niall Sabongi fell in love with seafood as a child, living on the east coast of Ireland. His father would bring him to the beach to find cockles and mussels to eat for dinner. Today, Niall is at the forefront of the conversation around Irish seafood. As a chef, he founded fish-centric favorite spots like Claw, Saltwater Grocery, and most recently, the Seafood Cafe, where we had a wonderful meal uh, a few months back. While a stereotypical Irish ocean-based meal might be fish and chips or chowder, at Niall's restaurants, the incredibly wide range of seafood is on display. Everything from oysters to crab to dayboat scallops, as well as less common preparations like ceviche and cod collar, is prepared with expert attention and respect for the product. It really is exactly what you wouldn't expect going into an Irish. Like, it's the exact opposite of what you would find going into a fish and chips restaurant, although they do have fish and chips, and they're very good. As we often talk about in this show, Ireland is an island nation, and yet... So much of the mainstream food culture doesn't necessarily reflect that. So I think it was really exciting to see so many, so many different kinds of seafood on the menu there. And they were all really delicious. Yeah, I'm still thinking about that fish soup. Yeah. 
It was really good. And we wanted to go, I wanted to order more. I wanted to order the pasta and Kate wouldn't let me because it was too much food. We still ordered too much food. And we could go, but we can go back and get that. Um, Niall also founded Sustainable Seafood Ireland, which is a wholesaler focusing on wild-caught Irish seafood, supplying restaurants and others, making sure that the freshest fish from Ireland's coast gets on the plate at some of Ireland's best restaurants. Yeah, if you know anything about Max and I, or about Bog and Thunder, or about Dyed Green, you know that we are all about wild fish. Yeah, we are so about wild fish. So, without further ado, Niall Savangi. When you enter the seafood cafe in Temple Bar, one of the first things you notice is the large neon sign that says Island Nation on the wall. Obviously, Ireland is an island, but at least for Americans anyway, it doesn't really seem to enter into people's idea of the food that people eat in Ireland. The fact that because it's an island nation, there is a wealth of seafood available to people. So I was wondering if we could start talking a little bit about that, about what that means. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so I suppose the, the island nation thing is uh, Ireland, as you said, you know, obviously it is is denied, but I suppose my reasoning behind choosing uh, plates and those words up in the restaurant was as much, it was more as a reminder to us and to the locals that we are an island, we are an island nation um, and we are surrounded by the waters and to be able to enjoy this bounty we have around us. Ireland's got a a complicated uh, history uh, when it comes to the island, the land and the sea around us. And we all, in our past, our quite recent past, we haven't had the right to to fish and to enjoy our waters and um, as much as we should have so um i suppose uh, the big neon sign which is a reminder to us is that you know that we are an island and we have it there so to enjoy it and hopefully that then translates into what's on the menu i understand that you grew up on the coast of dublin and that you spent a lot of time in the water as a child is that something that is typical for people that live on the coast to do that? Yeah, I think so. Like, um, yeah, I grew up, I grew up on the coast, and I still, I still live by the coast here. I can see the sea here from my window, um, and I still spend a lot of time in the water, and and so do most of the coast communities, I suppose, from from fishing and swimming and sailing and all these kind of pastimes and hobbies that we have in and around the coast. My father's Egyptian, my mother's Irish. So uh, when my dad came here, he was very much enthralled and fascinated by all the amazing seafood that there was, and especially along the beaches. So as kids, he'd bring us down along the beaches, picking cockles and mussels and fishing and things like that. So I suppose um, we got to enjoy that a little bit more than than others would have at the time. Was that something he was interested? Like, was that something he grew up doing in Egypt as well? Is that like culturally something that was carried through? Or is it a new experience? I think it was a new experience. My dad is a restaurateur as well. Um, so he would have owned restaurants in Ireland in the in the 80s and 90s and things like that. Um, but he got here working in London and Paris and all over the world and kind of got here and kind of landed. He's like, you know, there's mussels and crabs like for free on the beach. Um, so he'd drag all of us down as kids just to just eat and just, just you know, hang out and have fun, I suppose. Yeah, it reminds me of like, there's that really like, I mean, everyone's read it by now, but like, Anthony Bourdain has this childhood experience of like eating an oyster in France for the first time. And it's just kind of like, yeah, we just went outside and that stuff was all there. You know, it was just basically on our front doorstep, you know? Yeah, exactly. 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 So your father is a restaurateur. Did you grow up kind of supporting him and working in restaurants? Is that, is that kind of what opened the door for your career? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he wasn't that keen on the idea of us going into into the industry, obviously because it's a it's a tough game. Uh, from a very early age, I was kind of sneaking in and out of the kitchen to help the chefs and to see what they're doing. So from a very early age, I was kind of in in the business, whether you know in some form, be it front of house or behind a bar or in a kitchen peeling prawns or something like that. And I suppose that's where the where the passion really kind of came from, the love kind of from a very early age. Did you ever consider going into any other type of career? Do you think that you realized early on that the kitchen was where you wanted to be? No, I knew by, I would say I was about eight, uh, eight, eight or nine years old. That, that's what I wanted to do. And then while still at school, I started training in, in my dad's kitchens um, to qualify as a chef at the same time I was finishing school. So I was kind of doing the two things in tandem. But uh, I knew 100% that that's what I wanted to do, to be in hospitality and in and around it. So I've spent my life kind of going between the, the front of the house and the kitchen and forwards and backwards throughout my career. Um, just what I've always just kind of gravitated towards. And then was there a, a point in your career that you started to go down the, the seafood route or was that something you discovered later on? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I don't think there was like, there was a moment, there was always any, any menu I got to write, there was always a heavy, heavy seafood influence. Um, so it was always quite fish heavy. Um, but then I always found, like, I love eating seafood and I love eating fish, obviously, and I love going to restaurants. And in Ireland, it was always quite a posh kind of affair, you know, it was always very expensive restaurants and crisp white linen tablecloths and, you know, huge big wine lists and all the very complicated things, which I found off-putting. So when I opened Claw originally, I just wanted to make it super, well, all of them, every every version I've done, but especially Claw, I just wanted to make it super accessible for people to come in and enjoy it and take all the, take all the faff away and also to be actually just seafood. I like that uh, that we've committed to, to only having seafood in the menu. Uh, there is no meat uh, options on it. So it's uh, seafood all the way. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing to reintroduce so-called forgotten seafood recipes on your menus? Yeah, so we did some work with uh, Trinity College and the Department of Humanities, digging up old Irish recipes um, and reinventing them, I suppose, for the modern palate. So we did we did quite a bit of that, you know, with fish head terrines and lots of bits. But as we kind of delved further and further through history, because Ireland was obviously a colony, it was obviously part of the, the United Kingdom, um, and Dublin was within the pale. So it was very heavily influenced by the food there. So we had a lot of things like curry paste and curry powders and uh, really sweet and exotic items that you wouldn't, you'd never associate with Irish food. We started finding, the, finding all of those kind of wrapped up into our history. We started to try and use and utilize those more and more uh, in our everyday dishes and 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 recipes. How far back were some of the the recipes that you were using? One hundred fifty, two hundred years. Yeah, yeah, they were cool. Uh, it was obviously kind of you know boiled seafoods and the stuff that was just wasn't very tasty. And then there was other bits pieces, you know, that were really heavy in butter and cream and all the delicious things that we love to. Um, add to food. So it made it, uh, it made it an easy journey. Something else that I think is really interesting about the work that you do is your commitment to sustainability. I believe Sustainable Seafood Ireland is about 10 years old now, but I was wondering if you could take me back prior to that and just let me know, or what made you become interested in just sustainability in general? Was that from your work as a chef or did that come about in a different way? 
I think from both the shepherd side of it led me on to to sourcing and, and looking into wanting to understand more. And then my love like of the sea and the ocean and the island itself. And um, I would feel very connected to the waters around the island and um, especially my own local waters here. So seeing them and wanting to understand them more um, and protect them more, I suppose, um, was a catalyst to, to kind of push them away. When Sustainable Seafood Ireland came about, it was never an intentional business. And uh, I wanted to get closer and closer to the source and I wanted to understand it more and I wanted better variety. And I knew the fish were here, but they weren't being sold here. They're being exported. Um, which still 90 something percent of Irish seafood get, all gets exported. So I wanted to get closer, closer to it. And the heavier I got into it and, and the more I wanted to buy, it needed to become more than just the sum of its parts. Um, and then that came around to me forming the company and the friends and other chefs and other restaurants wanted same kind of seafood that I had. So we started selling just to friends and the chefs that I would have worked with over the years. And um, so that's how the company kind of started when I chose the name Sustainable Seafood Ireland. It was very much just a mission statement. Um, that's what I wanted it to be. And I wanted to understand more. And like sustainability is such a massive word. And sustainability around seafood is, you know, very unclear. Uh, so it's been a journey, I suppose, over the last, as you said, we're 10 years uh, in October uh, this year. So it's been very much a journey to, you know, in the beginning, I was very idealistic and I thought that I could have everything sustainable, I could have everything that I wanted. And now we understand more and more about what it is and how to achieve it and what goals need to be in place. And so it's a constant learning. Um, and you mentioned just now that 90% of the, the seafood that's caught in and around Ireland is still exported. Can you explain why that is? Is that connected to the EU? Only in the last, I suppose, 20 years as Ireland started eating and consuming more and more seafood. Um, previously in, in our history, we never got to eat seafood. It was all taken by the English. So uh, we weren't allowed. So Cromwell, for example, uh, one of the rulers of the UK and Ireland, um, had a law which banned all Irish people um, owning property within 10 miles of the sea. So our segregation from the sea started many, many, many generations ago, and we never got into the habit of eating and enjoying it like the Portuguese or the French or the Spanish or any of our European neighbours would have had that opportunity. So in that, uh, the only market that, that that we had, like in the 50s and 60s and stuff, was to export the seafood. And we kept very minimal amounts here. That's begun to change now rapidly, and the palate in Ireland has changed dramatically in the last 10 years, 20 years, especially the last 10 years, it's, you know, dramatically changed. Uh, so that's why uh, exporters, that's one reason. And then the other reason is that um, Europe will just pay a higher price. And uh, the countries and cultures that have more of an affinity with seafood understand the, the true value of it. And they'll be the likes of Red Mullet and John Dory and Turbot and all, all the amazing fish in our seas. They'll, um, they will pay a premium for them. Uh, we don't export, and that's kind of been the ethos of SSI, Sustainable Seafood Ireland, from the beginning, it was to keep it here, um, which we do, which is great. But all over the island now, people are just more used to eating and enjoying seafood on a daily basis rather than just being the, the occasional wild salmon that somebody's uncle will catch. I was going to ask you to talk like a little bit more about that change over the last 10 years and like, what do you think drove the change, has driven that change? And what what does it look like for you, you know, being kind of... I suppose it's been like 
Yeah, like travel and education. You know, we travel an awful lot as Irish people. The likes of, you know, the small airlines like Ryanair, et cetera, have opened up the Europe and the rest of the world to us. So we're, we're traveling and we're eating away so much more now than we were 20 years ago. And we're eating sea bass in Greece and we're eating sardines in Cornwall and we're eating this and that. And then we're coming home and, and we're wanting the same and they're wanting, then they can see that it is available here. And it's not only is it ava- available, but it's sustainable and it's local, it's eth- ethical and supporting small scale fisheries. So I think the, the education piece behind it then when they get home has just kind of driven it further. That and chefs, we've all travelled this generation and the generation before me have all travelled so much and trained all over the world. We've come back with a different palate that we would have left with. Um, and most chefs enjoy and love cooking really, really good, top quality Irish, well, fresh seafood. So coming back to Ireland, I suppose, we've always kind of gravitated towards, um, towards, cook, towards cooking again. Was it like a feeling of like, oh my God, this has been here this whole time and we didn't even think about it kind of a thing, especially for the chefs who, who went, who've gone to train in other, other countries where these things are, you know, rightly considered to be delicacies. And then, yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. You you know, like I mean, a few years ago, you would never have seen a, a live Irish scallop and now you see them all the time and you know, there's a, we have such a, such a multitude of, of amazing seafood here. I suppose we're still just learning how to cope and how to grapple and how to use all the ingredients that we have available to us. You know, simple things like razor clams, um, which I know you guys have in the States as well, but we export tons, I mean, like hundreds of tons a week uh, to Spain and places. And we're still trying to learn how to enjoy them and, and how to get them onto menus and things like that, or whelks and thing, things like that, which are super sustainable and available and affordable. So we're still very much developing, I think. Uh, we visited Kelly Oysters in Galway a few weeks ago to try their oysters and learn about the oyster farm. And Michael Kelly was telling us that during COVID, where prior to lockdown, I think they were exporting a majority of their oysters to other parts of Europe and also Canada and a little bit in the US. And then something happened during COVID where the trading kind of shut down for obvious reasons. But he mentioned something that was really interesting to me was that since everything has basically reopened again that their entire like import their entire export market has like flipped and now they actually they actually sell I think 70% of their oysters for the domestic market in Ireland so I'm not sure if something happened then that kind of opened Irish eyes to (laughs) to the yeah, I think it did. Like, I mean, it's like even for us in the wholesale, we were always, you know, only dealt with restaurants. And during COVID, we changed our business model and started selling online. You know, and it was a whole new market, and it was, you know, it was amazing. Like, and the Kelly family are amazing, and we buy. I'd say it's safe to say we're probably their biggest uh, purchaser in Dublin of their oysters and their clams. And that that that's the change. We changed it. No. Uh, they're an amazing, yeah, thanks, <laughs> on behalf of the island. Um, they they have an amazing product and they're an amazing family. They have an amazing heritage and history with the land and how long they've been there. And I think uh, COVID gave the opportunity for, for more people to know more about it. And the same family had been fishing and farming on the same land since 50, I think, 1501. Um, I think we all became a lot more... Um, a lot more focused on small suppliers um, and trying to support small suppliers, especially when businesses close. You know, obviously the food industry what, what was the, the biggest one hit, be it from farmers to suppliers, 
like us and to growers you know be it of vegetables and, and all the way through so there was this there was a massive support like we used to have queues every day you know down the road literally for an hour or two hours of people buying seafood off us just and you know they could have got it in the supermarket but they came out and and they went to the small producers and the small suppliers to try and buy it buy from them so um we're still seeing a lot of that now where people have just got used to eating oysters and things at home, whereas previously they just wouldn't die. People just would not buy oysters to have at home, whereas now it wouldn't be uncommon to open a fridge and see there's an oyster sitting in it, which is just it's remarkable, really. Do you think um, like this new relationship to seafood is primarily based around seeing it as sort of a luxury item or is it more of like a more common, commonly, you know, everyday consumed type of food? It was always seen as a luxury item. And uh, I think now more so. Um, and I think we, in our own little way, kind of help with that, may try to make it affordable and accessible. And as people have got more confident in the kitchen and more confident with their shopping, they're willing to buy it and cook fish at home more. You know, there's always that fear in Ireland, like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm, I'm going to burn it or I'm going to maybe raw or something like that. So they've got a lot more confident with it. And again, lockdown helped with that because, you know, if you wanted to eat well, you had to make it yourself. Uh, so people got, got more into it, yeah. I'm curious about the relationship between Sustainable Seafood Ireland and some of the small boats and the local fishermen around the island of Ireland. One thing that I think happened around the world during lockdown was that suddenly all these fishermen were being asked to stop fishing completely because the restaurants that they were supplying weren't open and there was nowhere for the for the fish to go. It's my understanding that you you pivoted a little bit during that time in order to be able to bring the fish to people's homes. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that and then also maybe more broadly about the relationships that you have with the fishermen in the light of all the the pressure that they're experiencing from the fishing industry. Yeah, so uh, fishing in Ireland is a complicated one. Um, obviously, we we pivoted and we were kind of one of the first ones to kind of pivot and stay open. We kind of had a choice to be closed or to be stay open. And, you know, I, I didn't know what else to do. Like, I, I know how to work. Um, that's the only thing I know how to do. So that's what I did. I got in touch with the boats and the co-ops, even the bigger co-ops. They, they still had fish landing. You know, lads wanted to go fishing. You know, they needed to find a market for it. Um, so that's what we tried to do. There was loads of small boats around or guys that would normally fish in the bigger boats. They were then tied up to the wall, decided to take their own smaller vessels out to, to go fishing for them uh, for stock. And, the, you know, they'd land such an array of different fish, you know, from Cork to Donegal to over Sligo, up, up and down the East Coast. So they would they would just land to us and, and we would just do what we do. We would just sell it um, as, as best we could. Um, you know, either as whole fish and fish fish fillets, but then we started doing a lot of kind of seafood suppers and using the smaller fish then again to kind of make things like hay kievs and lasagnas and loads of you know curries and different things like that to try and to just find an outlet for it. Our staffing doubled during during COVID. Everybody else seemed to to drop, and uh, we doubled our staffing because it was just it's a lot more labour intensive. There was a lot of work going on, a lot of changes developing to move from one model to another model. Um, so there was a lot there was a lot going on, and then we took it to the streets. We we had little, you know, it wouldn't be unusual to for one of our vans to pull up some side street and one of our staff, one of our guys, to jump out of the back of a van with a load of fish and literally start selling fish in the side of the street. Uh, I swear to God, <laughs> crazy. Like my operations manager for the whole, for, for all of it, Philly, 
you know, we kind of look back at it now, like it was a restaurant manager at the time. And, you know, and then I mean, we, we taught him how to fill it. And once I saw that he could actually do it, I was like, hmm, hang on a second. And we would be literally down, I swear to God, down laneways in Dublin, uh, selling fish. And, you know, Dubliners would be coming out and popping down to us on a Tuesday morning at half nine and getting a bit of cod or crazy. Crazy, like very, uh, very old fashioned. Seems like it was exactly that. It was the whole like hundred, hundred years yeah, ago. Or 50 but that's exactly what it was. It was kind of trading, streets, you know, street trading, and the whole Molly Malone thing, you know, with the cockles and the muscles. I don't know if you know the song, but um... <laughs> so have you been able to sustain that level of business? Have you kept all those staff? Is it still, or did it kind of re-regulate? We've we uh, all the staff. Have, now, all the staff have, have been kept, and initially we tried to keep the markets, the wholesale, the online, the suppers, all of it going at the same time. And after about a month or so, we kind of realized, no, look, we can't do it all together all the time. So we, we brought it all just back to wholesale, and we've been kind of focusing on that for the last, um, for the first part of this year anyway, focusing on that, doing the odd little supper here and there. And uh, now for the for the second half of the year, we're going to start to try and look at bringing some of that back in because we went from zero back to not far off our old turnover, um, which, which is amazing to do. Um, so now we're trying to understand what the demands and needs are now of, of, of consumers and what they wanted to try and find a new base because, you know, whenever there was opening, closing, opening, closing, it was so erratic, it was very hard to plan. And when you've got, when you've got a product like fish, it just makes it that little bit more tricky to, to kind of manage it. So uh, the wholesale's going well. We're, we're still really lucky that we've never had to go out and knock on a door. Just the people that just come to us and, and want great fish. So super. And um, we'll start working on the rest of it now, I suppose, for the rest of this year is the plan. So what sort of like new business ventures are you thinking about for the rest of this year and, and looking forward? Hey, looking forward. So continue to develop wholesale. We are looking at opening. So we used to have um, two restaurants in the city centre, the Seafood Cafe, which you guys know, and then Claw, which is this tiny little brother around the corner. I don't know if you're if you're ever there. It's just it's this tiny little hole in the wall. You know, the sat twelve people, um, and it was just ugly, beautiful. It was just weird. You know, you had to walk through the kitchen to go to the toilet, and I only hired chefs working it so they did all the serving and all the cooking so it added a whole a whole new dimension to what service was having a lot of these chefs kind of screaming and shouting and running around and getting to deal with customers firsthand um which is cool it was really good it was like lightning in a bottle so we're gonna we're gonna try and recreate that this year we found a new a new location for it and so now we're kind of going through contracts that so hopefully by the end of the summer we'll uh claw 1.2 will uh, will reopen um which is really cool um and then we look at other things like a smokehouse i'd like to start working on uh, potentially small artisan hand kind of handcrafted smokehouse for this year and we're also looking into the uh, oysters and oyster farming perhaps uh, not for commercial gain but more for environmental gain and um, we've kind of seen the project in, in New York with the Billion Oyster project and stuff. And I was lucky enough to go over and visit them and kind of see that. Um, I think it's just fascinating. So longer term, I'd, I'd, I'd love to kind of um, look at that and see uh, and see what can be done and see how much it helps the, helps the environment from those different kind of angles. Yeah, there's like all these, um, unfortunately, you know, news about rivers being polluted and, and waterways, like not as nearly as pristine as people would have as we all want them to be. So oysters are a really interesting way to kind of mitigate all that, right? 
Yeah, 100%. It, it, it's amazing. Like when we went to the Billy Noyce project in New York, I was just amazed that, you know, how much cleaner they had got the water in such a short period of time. The biodiversity quadrupled from, I think it was like six species to 13 species or something crazy um, within a matter of years. So I think that I mean, that's fascinating. And I'd love to try it, try it and see what kind of what kind of difference it would make. But obviously then there's coastal erosion. But, you know, it's still very early stages of, of just kind of poking around and looking at the legislation and the side part of it and permissions and stuff of that like. So it's much longer term for, for this year and for the beginning of next year, definitely the, the new claw and... Um, and kind of focusing on the wholesale, on kind of trying to uh, trying to streamline that into something that's you know like ten years is. I'm delighted. I think it's a, it's monumental to have made it ten years, um, and I'd like to see it around for the next ninety years, uh, plus. So it's trying to realise what sustainability now means now ten years on, and what we do now ten years on. Like, is it the same as what we used to do, or is it not? And trying to find that path. That's really cool. Like, I imagine the as you said, the um, customer, well, even the wholesale, I guess I should say like chefs and restaurants are dealing with much more educated customers now. So they're probably looking for like a higher level of maybe transparency or just information, right? Do you field a lot more questions from chefs and from customers about where's this from, who caught this, that kind of thing? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, 100% and we're actually there along the way in Ireland we've always been so focused on our beef and our lamb and that side of um of the industry whereas a lot of the time you'll know the farmer's name you'll know where where the cattle was bred you know what they were eating all these things whereas in seafood it was never really like that whereas now it, it, it's getting closer that they know that like tomorrow morning Colin uh, who is uh, comes from some all Irish speaking uh, fishermen's co-op who fish our scallops and, uh, you know, they know that Colin's coming up tomorrow with all of the live scallops that are caught off the back of a curric. So have you ever seen, have you ever seen a curric, the small boats? So they're all caught off the back of the curric and this is a curric caught scallop and it's Colin and the other fishermen that are on a rosa down in Connemara fishing for the scallops a couple of times a week. And uh, so they're getting this information and and they love it and then passing it on to the customer. And then the customer, you know, definitely feels more connected, I think. Not the tourists, but the locals that, you know, that this is where where it is and who it's from. And I think that in, in the States, there's a, there's a hashtag, uh, Know Your Fisherman. Um, which I think is really cool. So we try and do that a little, little bit here as well, and just use the same hashtag just to try and let people connect to to the reality of it. This comes from this guy who went in that, and went in that little boat out there. <laughs> do you know? and, and here, um, I, here too, I think it started like you were saying with it was like know your farmer, and mm. then that people started taking that same approach to the sea as well to fishermen. Yeah. Yeah, which is great. Uh, which is great, and it like, develops it develops it more. And the fishermen, all the fishermen that I've ever met in Ireland, are so proud of what they do, and it's it's something that's in their blood. You know, very few people come into the industry from outside it. So these guys are generational fishermen, and they love and they're real custodians of the sea. They really care about what they're doing. They want to do better, and and they're so proud. And then when they see their names and they see their fish, and they see their localities and you know their villages written on menus, it's a huge, huge pride boost for them like it's great so um yeah i think we need to ha- might need to have colin on the show <laughs> yeah, yeah super yeah, interesting we'll <laughs> yeah we might have to might have to go out there well you, you really should though but like that that co-op in particular like they're all irish speaking and they're only allowed fish in the small kirks uh, as part of their licensing to keep the bay uh exclusive for them 
Um, and it is an amazing story. And the beaches where they fish and in and around that landmass, I mean, it's incredible looking. Um, so on your next trip over, yeah, please do. We'll arrange it. And let's go fishing off the back of Kirk. Okay, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's actually like something that has been of great interest to us. In particular, like, obviously the... Is this an inner, like a multi-generational group of fishermen? Like, is there a new generation of people taking up fishing for scallops in Kurics right now? Or is that something that's dying out? Because No, there is. Now that, now that I suppose um, that we've all teamed up together and, and now they're seeing the the commercial viability of it because we're buying so much and people like the likes of Hawksmoor Restaurant, for example, who've just moved here, a big UK brand, they have them on their menu. So it's creating a lot of kind of stir about it. So these guys are generational. And, you know, you're talking, you know, three, four generations ago, they were fishing for them in a boat called a Galway Hooker. Um, it was a very complicated boat to sail and never mind fish off. So their grandfather and great-grandfathers used to be fishing off the back of these. So, and now these guys are in the Kirks. Um, and many of them are quite young, you know, well, young comparatively you know i suppose uh during the 30s and 40s so hopefully we will see the next generation coming up there you know they they fish and a lot of them have have other jobs you know some of them are plumber like um dara great guy heavily involved in co-op you know he's a plumber by day and a scallop fisherman by night like uh comes in and you know goes out in the kirk and it's, it's all done on a roster so it's all very even and fair they all get a certain amount of quota per man and per boat um, so they go out. So it's um, it's a real testament to what sustainable fishing really is. Yeah. Not to keep talking about Kelly oysters, but when we went there and Michael, I'm not sure exactly how old he is, but he seems like he's in his thirties. And we were talking a little bit about. <laughs> I'm telling you, Sam, I'm okay. delighted. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> But we were talking about how Ireland has, you know, for a long time experienced a lot of outward migration and has had trouble with younger people not wanting to go into farming and instead moving to to other parts of the world, like, you know, the US and Australia. And we were just talking about like the impact on that, the emphasis on restaurants and chefs and how much more popular great chefs and great restaurants have become in the way that, you know, knowing your farmer and knowing your fisherman has kind of made it, um, you know, for lack of a better explanation, made it like sexy again to, to be a farmer, to be a fisherman or to be involved in running an oyster farm. Yeah, I think we're at the beginning of that, you know, like it used to be sexy or cool years ago to, to be a chef and, you know, and then it became very cool and they got the limelight and they were in the papers, you know, and things like that. But it's a hard job um, to bring new people into the industry in Ireland. Uh, we're very lucky. We're a very well-educated country with a great education system. So there's easier ways to make money. Um, to, 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 you know, to, to, so there's that side of it. Um, it's always difficult. As I said, like, I really think it needs to be in, you know, it's in their blood. Like, I mean, if, if they're born and, and they're in it. But a lot of people coming from the fish industry now will go into marine biology and, and into that side of it as well. It is hard to to keep um, indigenous kind of craft like that, I think, going. And it's going to be a challenge um, into the future for sure. It's difficult to fish in Ireland. It's difficult to be in that industry. The government's not very geared towards supporting it. I'm sure you've heard this if you've, heard, if you've spoken to any anybody in the industry. You know, there's we have a very small amount, like a very small amount of the fish that we catch in Ireland. Are we allowed to actually catch three um, percent out of the entire quota of fish? Is what Ireland gets to hold on to. So we can't catch enough fish, you know, to make it viable. Um, so the government has a huge amount of work to make it viable. 
on that level before you're going to start seeing more people coming into it. So you're kind of being stopped at the top and then at the bottom then as well with so many choices of, you know, education and place in the world you can go and travel and work, you know, in high demand for high for high salary. Uh, so it's a difficult um, it's a difficult one to navigate and some big changes need to happen. Just for everybody who's listening who doesn't understand, where does the other 97% of the fish go if not caught by Irish fishermen? All the other European boats, Ireland basically gave its rights away, um, not only for fish, but for oil and for gas also. We gave away all of our rights of oil and gas. Um, we've, we've, we've had some ridiculously mismanaged assets. Uh, and so, yeah, so like I mean, like a Polish boat, which is a landlocked country, can come into Ireland and fish more cod than we can um, ourselves. You know, and they come into, you know, they're allowed to fish in certain areas that they shouldn't be in really and much much bigger boats Irish boats are traditionally quite small we're low impact um, and you get these big super trawlers coming in um, from all around the world even you know the likes of Japan you get like off the west coast now into international waters there's probably three or four massive big Japanese boats there catching tuna bluefin tuna which we have no quota for so we're not even allowed to catch it so once the tuna leave Ireland they head towards Spain the Spanish can catch it and they go toward Italy the, the Italians can catch it and um the only place the Japanese can get it close enough to to catch it is Irish waters because we're like, oh yeah, sure. I mean, do you think that that's oh, like that multi billion pound industry? Do you think that that's it is it, it is gambling. <laughs> it is, and that's why fishermen get annoyed, and that's why people don't go into the industry. It's like, but well, sure, sure, why would you when you know you're not able to catch? I mean, you know, there has to be a different set of rules for or an even share or an even kill in it. Ireland has had support from the EU, which were great and helped Ireland get to get to a certain stage. But, you know, to have it open-ended, you know, it's just nonsensical. Like, like you wouldn't run a business like that, you know. Uh, so, and it's a business. Ireland's a business, so. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Do you think that as like Irish people, like we keep coming, circling back to in the last 10 years have become much more aware of how, like the delicious seafood that is right on the coast. Do you think like that there might be a, like a public appetite to change that or at least negotiate differently when the next round comes up? I I think there will be. I mean, there's, there's a lot more people connected to farming and to other industries in Ireland than there is to seafood and to fish. Um, therefore, the voice isn't as loud. Um, or if it is, it's, been, it's kind of falling on deaf ears. Um, I mean, we hear s- similar stories when we talk to farmers about the, you know, how things changed when Ireland joined the EU and 
how farming practices changed and things were basically geared towards a certain type of farming, you know, expert oriented and all that well, stuff as well. Yeah, moving away from a lot of these more traditional methods that might have had uh, smaller farmers with very multi crops and many different types of livestock as opposed to just having one, growing one or two things. Yeah, which which obviously is terrible for the land and the environment, just having intensive farming one time, whereas the the older way of having changing crops and having changing um you know, different animals was it's obviously just just better for the for the biosphere. And the whole export thing, the whole country is just geared, I find it's just geared toward towards export. Uh, which means we never get to really enjoy with certainly with seafood, we just don't get to enjoy it more. We are now more and more with seafood and with beef and with lamb because we know it's there. We're demanding it here. So there's a small market here, but it's easier for farmers and it's easier for fishermen to to put it on the back of a truck and send it away um than to divvy it out and, and to sell it here. So we visit Sally Barnes and her smokehouse in, in West Cork as much as we can. And you know, it, it often feels like one afternoon with Sally is like a a college course in sustainability <laughs> and, and the, the problems with the EU fishing rights struggle. One of the problems in terms of the consumer perspective is that people don't, you don't see what's happening under the water and you, you don't see the boats are offshore. It's not something that you can just drive by. And people, I think, are open to the idea of like, <clears throat> of course, knowing your farmer and knowing your fisherman, but because it's not, you don't see the animals in cages like you do at a factory farm on the land. People just don't really understand how to translate those sorts of farming and growing practices to things that happen under the sea. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like, I love Sally so much, and, you know, and, and she's such an advocate for sustainability and for, and she's 100% right. Everything that comes out of the woman's mouth is right, and people are, they don't see it. So, so you're not affected, you're, you're not affected by it. Um, and that kind of disconnect that we've always had with the sea and with fishing, you know, it, it is only supported more by this. You know, we're only getting to a stage of realizing now what we have and wanting it and things like that. But, you know, there is that question, have we gone too far along now to for a voice to for us to be able to go back and to correct it? Um, because changes need need to happen for it to remain. Like sustainable, it's not just about, you know, how many fish there are in the sea. It's about whether it's viable as well, you know, for these families and communities. But like, you know, would honestly, if you put like 10 intelligent people in, into a room, you'd have a pretty good strategy, I would say, within a day. Uh, you know, and like we're the whole coastline will benefit you. You know, you guys have driven to Ireland. You'll you'll be town, great stuff. Nothing, 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 nothing. Tiny village, tiny village, tiny village. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And you know, and these are all coastal. And if you go over, like if you look at the the model in the UK, down around the Cornish coast and things like that. You know, if you go, if you do, you were to drive down there, see thriving village, thriving village, thriving village, thriving village, thriving village. And the, what's the similarity between them all? They're all fishing villages. They, they all catch the fish, they sell it locally, they export it, they send it up to London, all the rest of it. And with that, they've got pubs and restaurants and bars and, you know, grocery shops and all the other bits and pieces that are needed for, for vibrant communities, um, which we don't have because, we, because, because we're missing the first part of the problem. You know what I mean? We're missing the, the support that, that needs to be there. Um, okay, going back to, I did want to ask about, like, the fish that you carry and the fish that, that are caught. Obviously, 
there are some things that you that are not able to be caught, such as bluefin tuna. Are, are there any like lesser known fish or some sort of like favorites that you catch that you want to share with us that people might not think of when they think of Irish? Bluefin can be caught. Um, it's often caught as a bycatch. And then some uh, operators like ourselves are given a license uh, to butcher it and sell it. So at this time of year and coming into September, we will be loads of bluefin and we'll be fishing uh, mackerel at the same time. And ultimately the bluefin eat the mackerel and they end up in a net. So from time to time, uh, you will see Irish bluefin being sold in, in Ireland, which is great fun. Um, as for, and then what, what's the question? Other favourites, favourite fish that, that? Yeah, yeah, like, uh, yeah, some favourites or things that you're, yeah. There's so, like, I mean, there's so many. It really depends on the week and the month of the year. Like, just coming out of season now will be red mullet. Um, you know, like, ah, oh God, they're just, they're just delicious. You kind of get them from spring all the way into summer. And, you know, they're, you kind of start seeing them at the same time you see your rolls and they're just delicious together. And um, I was just really excited to see them because it's that real fish that you always kind of, I always associate with the Mediterranean, you know, and with summer climbs and that kind of thing. So um, that would be like a, a huge favourite. At the moment, Pollock, white Pollock, is being caught by, by lines. So a lot of the kind of, small lobster boats or even the, the guys down the Couracs, they'll start putting boards, uh, little floating boards at the back of the boats when, when they're going along and they have little lines hanging off them and they catch pollock and there would be big fish to be maybe, you know, two kilos or whatever, four or five pounds fish and, and they're just beautiful. They're stunning. It's a beautiful white meat. I'd, I'd rather pollock, white pollock any day um, versus cod or hake. It's delicious. So that's really good at the moment. Uh, like I can go on I can just keep on listing fish <laughs> that's and, good stuff and why I enjoy them uh, <laughs> you know like inshore mackerel is now in season you know so you're getting loads of line caught mackerel squid will start quite soon so we'll start seeing loads of Irish squid and that's all we sell so we buy as much squid as we can kind of from now until you know October Um and we'll just buy as much as we can, we'll freeze it because we don't use the, you know, the squid tubes that have been flown halfway across the planet and bleached and, you know, um, dubious origins. So uh, lovely, really excited to see squid and squid's so super sustainable. It's almost, you know, it's almost the most sustainable of all of all the fishies out there. Um, so excited about them. Um, yeah, the list just goes on. It's, I mean, it's so interesting, like the, I think the seasonality of seafood and fish is just something that most people don't are not aware of it all, but mm. it's, it is such a seasonal product, right? Like there's, it's not a year round everything kind of a no, situation. It's not, like, and, and they're not all delicious all year round. Like at the moment, the likes of, you know, place is lovely. Asian lemon sole and flatfish because, because they were in row, you know, a couple of months ago. So they've now, their babies are out there and they're beginning to fatten up again. So they're going to get really fat and really nice big thick fillets. They're just going to be delicious and gorgeous. So they're beautiful now, but if you eat them during February or March, they're, you know, they're terrible. Uh, so it's like that so yeah like, I mean, it is super seasonal and even like there's things in Ireland that are caught that just people don't expect like the likes of like swordfish uh, are, are really big gilthead bream we get them in our waters for maybe a week or two as they're swimming on to Spain or they're following the, gulf, they're following the food down along the Gulf Stream and we'll catch them and, and when we do it's super exciting and it's you know, that hyper seasonal hyper local ingredient that's just you know it's why we do what we do amazing yeah. Anything else, Kate? Sounds great. No, I think, I mean, I, I do feel like we could keep on talking to you for a really long time. Thanks. <laughs> 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 uh, um, yeah, it's hard to get me to talk about fish. Yeah, I do really love the seafood cafe, though. I mean, I think that, I think it's oh, probably thanks. like the best seafood restaurant I've well, ever I, eaten I, at. I, I need a sound bite of just that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, thanks. It's really simple. Like, you know, I love it because you get to interact with the chefs and you get to hang out up at the bar and um, it's super casual and it's only seafood on the menu. There's no little steaks hidden anywhere. And um, we try and keep the food as simple as, as possible. It means that it's just like seafood cookery for me is just like, it's like short, short order cooking. You know, it's something that goes into a pan and out within within seconds. There's no elaborate processes that need to be added to it. You just keep it really simple and just add a couple of, you know, nice seasonings. I don't think you can go far wrong with seafood. So that's kind of my mantra. And I, I grew up in New Jersey and my parents live in the Jersey Shore right now. And I think I think one of the issues that I have with, with seafood restaurants that I go to in the States anyway, is that most of the restaurants, even when they're, they are seafood restaurants are not letting the flavors of the fish speak for themselves. And they're also not, they're definitely not doing the seasonality type of a thing. The certain kinds of fish that they sell, they're available all year round, and then you can get them broiled or pan fried or encrusted in something or another. So you can get them all cooked all the same way. But sometimes when you go to those types of places, you're like, are is this really fresh? Is this really caught? It's all deep fried. It's all fried. It's like, it has that almost like a theme park feel of a seafood type of restaurant versus actually, you know, there's, I don't necessarily trust that there are people yeah. going out like, on the boat every day for those. Types yeah, of places, no, like, you know? I, mean, I think a lot of the kind of like, I've been in the States a few times. I think like, I mean, there, there is definitely that mainstream kind of, I don't know, KFC kind of Hollywood vibey to, yeah, to some of the fish places yeah. where, where an awful lot of it's fried and wrapped in bread and stuff like that. But then you, you, you guys have got some, like, I mean, killer seafood joints up and down the coast of the States, you know, I could name about 50 of them that are just brilliant, that, that are really super seasonal, um, that are super seasonal and, and they do really great things. And we look at them all the time for ideas and inspiration. So um, I just think the States is so big. You've got so many, so many millions and billions of people over there. Um, that's where the market's obviously gone to that kind of crowd pleasing style thing. Whereas I suppose what, what we do in the cafe is um, <laughs> we're going to please ourselves and hope that everybody else, just hope that everybody else kind of likes it as well. Um, but it's cool. We only have 30 seats, so I don't need to, we don't need to impress too many. Cool. Well, we can't wait to come visit and hopefully check out Claw and uh, maybe that'll be up and running next time we come see you drive around the coast and meet some fishermen and eat some fish together. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be amazing. And um, I'll hopefully see you soon and I'll get to cook for you and we can have these chats over the, over the counter while I'm grilling some fish. Sounds amazing. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It was so great to talk to you today. Really great. My pleasure, guys. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.